Good afternoon. It's Monday the 14th of August 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me today via video link, we have David Scott and Mark Anderson. Welcome to the programme both. So we're going to kick off very quickly here with uh, the World Climate Declaration. There is no climate emergency. This comes from the uh, Global Climate Intelligence Group and it was originally released in February. We reported it at the time. Um, so why are we mentioning it now? Well, because uh, a uh, laureate of the Nobel Laureate for Physics, uh, Dr. John F. Clauser has decided to sign this. It's the latest uh, Nobel Laureate to sign. Uh, and uh, well, I just wanted to highlight something that he said uh, at a speech that he gave last week. Um, and uh, so let's just have a look at what he said here. The popular narrative about climate change reflects a dangerous corruption of science that threatens the world's econo economy and well-being of billions of people. Uh, misguided climate science is metastasized into massive shock journalistic pseudoscience. Uh, in turn, the pseudoscience has become a scapegoat for a wide variety of other unrelated ills. It's been promoted and extended similarly uh, by similarly misguided business marketing agents, politicians, journalists, government agencies, and environmentalists. In my opinion, he said, there's no real climate crisis. There is, however, a very real problem with providing a decent standard of living to the world's large population uh, and an associated energy crisis. Uh, the latter being unnecessarily exacerbated, what in my opinion is incorrect uh, climate science. Uh, he then went on uh, to also highlight uh, this uh, organization, this thing. This is from uh, the Nobel organization itself. Um, and uh, they're calling it the International Panel on the, on the Information Environment. And he has expressed concerns about this because they, they say that they're modeling this on the IPCC. And what they're saying is uh, that the global source of scientific knowledge about the world's information uh, environment is what they are. Uh, they're saying algorithmic manipulation, bias, hate speech, misleading information, deep fakes and other acts have created global information environment crisis and an existential threat to humanity. So uh, this, uh, David, I'd be interested to get your thoughts on, first of all, his comments, uh, but also this organization, because, of course, this begins to sound like uh, an effort to control the narrative that he is, or at least take control or make sure that the narrative that he's highlighting, the, the narrative that he is criticizing, is maintained? Well, firstly, on his comments, they were absolutely spot on and really quite magnificent in that they got to the heart of the matter, which is this is a, a, a lie that will make people poorer and will drive people to desperation all across the world. And um, the nature of the errors that are being built in to government policy all across the world, once again, uh, are so severe that the, uh, the implications are that the huge improvement we've seen in worldwide living standards, in escaping uh, absolute poverty uh, over the last uh, 50 years, uh, they might go into reverse. This is very serious indeed. And he absolutely nails it. It was, it was, a, it was a very good, very concise summary of the problem. Um, as far as the IPIE is concerned, that sounds like the single source of truth uh, that Jacinda Ahern was uh, claiming to be during COVID. Is, is that not we, we are we are the arbiters of what is right and what is wrong? We we say what what is sayable. Is that is that what that is going to be? Uh, it uh, sounds very like it to me. So if uh, we're talking about information uh, in the information environment and so on, let's look at some information. Uh, this is uh, Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit. Uh, climate extremes like this summer's heat waves threaten UK imports from Mediterranean, is what they're saying. 
uh, and they are offering an analysis of the extent of UK food imports uh, from the Mediterranean region, which shows a th- uh, the scale of the threat, which is increasingly severe, sorry, which increasingly severe climate impacts pose to UK food security. Now, my question, David, is uh, where, where does this threat to impact, uh, this threat to UK food security coming from? So if we just put that back on screen for a second, uh, here is a quote from uh, Gareth Redmond King, who's the head of international program at the organize, this organization. And he's saying, the heat wave we've seen in Europe this summer in April and in April would be all but impossible without climate change. Now, I realize that's going to make you laugh, and I can see you laughing in the background. Well, come on, get your thoughts on this in a second. He went on to say uh, this, uh, we can't simply grow our way out of the problem by producing many of these foods in the UK. Well, that's true, but not for the reason that he's suggesting. Uh, He he goes on to say, uh, the only surefire way to avoid even worse and more dangerous impacts is to keep global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees C, uh, and the only way to do that is to cut our emissions to net zero. Uh, now, I'm, the reason I say that uh, he is uh, talking nonsense here, in a sense, is because, of course, it's nothing to do, the, the, the food insecurity issue with the UK has nothing to do with the climate. It is everything to do with government policy with respect to farming, uh, and particularly with respect to climate change, uh, because the sustainable farming program rolls on a pace, and in the meantime, uh, farmers are being encouraged to not produce food in this country. Uh, we've got so the Sustainable Farming Initiative, we've got no, local nature recovery, landscape recovery. This is all about bringing arable farming and, and uh, uh, meat farming, uh, returning that land back to what is perceived by the net zero crowd as uh, nature. But let's have a look, if we uh, look at uh, this organization, uh, the Energy and Climate Intelligence Unit, look at their advisory board and well, first name that I see there is Tom Bradshaw, who's from the National Farmers Union. Now, many farmers uh, say that he is pushing uh, you know, the climate change agenda extremely hard. He's doing so to the detriment of the farming industry. Uh, let's see who else is on here. There's Lord Krebs. Uh, Andrea Leadsom, uh, the former uh, leader of the House. Uh, Lord Hard, the former Tory leader. Um, we've got uh, Rear Admiral Neil uh, Morissetti on there as well. So these are the people that are deciding uh, what uh, our climate policy should be, uh, and so on. Um, so, David, uh, just as before you move into uh, Winchester Council, uh, just what are your final thoughts on that? The problem with uh, farming in the UK uh, is very much one of government policy, and the government policy is now turning against farming and against productive use of land, as it is in Holland, as it is in many places across the globe, we were seeing nonsense like uh, growing things for fuel, where we could actually get the fuel from elsewhere. Um, and this is, we can get away with this while there's relative plenty, but you add into this um, the attack on, for, exam- for example, international shipping that is in- inherent in the net zero plants, and it may well be that food security does in fact become challenged. And food security in less affluent countries in Great Britain will most certainly be challenged because we're going to see the reduced use of fertilizer, reduced use of, of automated equipment uh, as these, these items become um, frowned upon for ideological reasons. And this will mean people will suffer. Yes, indeed. But uh, also, as I say, the returning of land, the renaturization, the 
uh, rewilding, as the, the term is. Uh, but let's move on to Winchester here, here, David. What's been going on? Well, Winchester City Council, like almost every city council in the entire, entire UK, uh, is working on its local area plan. Uh, here we see a slide, Winchester District uh, Local Plan 20 to, 2020-2040. It's emerging like the creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, it would appear. And you see here all the various aspects of this that they're building into the local area plan. And this governs um, the planning. This is, is essentially is planning law in the local environment, in the local area. Um, planning says everything's permitted apart from what's prohibited. But the, the, the local plan then comes along and says actually the opposite, that everything's prohibited apart from what's allowed in the local plan. So this def this defines... Uh, what will happen in terms of development in the locality up to 2040. So it's extremely important. And of course, uh, carbon and CO2 is at the very heart of this. So you see we have here, again from Winchester City Council, net zero carbon tar uh, targets and the evidence base they're relying on. And if we delve into that a little bit, we'll see that they're looking to uh, take uh, car uh, Carbon emissions, what they term carbon emissions, uh, kilograms of CO2, CO2 is not carbon, but never mind. Carbon emissions down for both semi-detached and detached houses to zero. And even on their um, calculations, you see the capital cost of those homes is going to go up by five or six percent. So that's uh, not necessarily good news for people who want to roof over their heads. Uh, and we see also uh, the other diagrams are using the, the route to net zero. Um, which is very, very rapid. 80% of new homes by 2024 are meant to be, are meant to be uh, net zero, um, and it's all meant to be done by 2030. And, of course, we've got, um, we've got pyramidal and uh, triangular diagrams, because we always do, um, all about net zero. So net zero is at the heart of this. The idea that CO2 is a pollutant is at the heart of it. The idea that CO2 is warm in the atmosphere and this is catastrophic is at the heart of it. And, of course, as you just reported there, Mike, this is not the case. And many very well-informed people across the scientific and, and general community are, are calling this out as false. Now, here we have a video from Winchester uh, Council of uh, one local man uh, standing up and uh, sitting down, in fact, in, in front of the committee and putting forward a case. He only had three minutes and he did it extremely well and he covered many vital points. Um, Mr. Morse. Uh, some of us find it disturbing that an alleged climate emergency or things that seem to underpin our local plan. Uh, the documents uh, dealing with the Council's carbon neutrality roadmap states the development of the piece has been atmospheric carbon dioxide, CO2 emissions, etc. Few brief words about CO2. It is a trace gas currently making up 0.04% of our atmosphere. 96% of that is contributed by nature, not by man. It is an extremely low level historically on the planet, which is not good news 
to the planet or for nature. Either way, since carbon dioxide is plant food in photosynthesis and about it, not a single blade of grass would grow. All the crops and foodstuffs, and not a single animal would live. There'd be no life on Earth. Uh, the climate has never been driven by CO2. On the contrary, CO2 levels in the atmosphere follow warming. They do not precede it or cause it. Your roadmap ignores all of this, and it presumably the basis on which planning decisions will be made, uh, as it does the science that there is no scientific evidence that there is no catastrophic global warming, let alone caused by CO2 or fossil fuels. In your information, uh, the hottest decade of the last hundred years was the 1930s. Verify that in your service. Climate change is naturally all the time, and human activity is largely irrelevant. Normal human activity. On this showing, there's no justification for the economic and human cost of any push for carbon net zero will cause. And there are no realistic alternative technologies like wind and solar power even remotely substitute for hydrocarbon fuels, oil, and gas. That is impossible. Um, the roadmap also flags the creation, in fact, a favour the creation of 15-minute cities, low-traffic neighbourhoods, and other measures restricting movement. Um, these are potential threats to the livelihoods, well-being, and ultimately even fundamental human services of the population. I would suggest to the Council that regardless of what government dictates, etc., may seem to impose upon uh, and by way of opinions, requirements, etc., it is their duty not to follow this destructive delusion. It is their duty and their responsibility to do what is in our interest. Your responsibility is to us, not to the government, the authorities, the United Nations, the IPCC, or any, any dubious source of that kind. Your responsibilities as individuals, macro-conscious and all of you, is to us, to our human rights, liberties and genuine well-being. Thank you very much, Councillor. Thank you very much, Mr Morse. I think there are two schools of thought and you obviously share a different one from one that the City Council's local plan holds at the current point. But thank you for your contribution. It's certainly worthwhile hearing. Thank you. And wasn't that interesting? So we had CO2 is not a pollutant, it's plant food. And uh, essentially, uh, Mr Morse calling on the doctrine of the lesser magistrates and asking the Council to defend the local community from harmful uh, ideas from further afield. Uh, and, and, but at the very end, uh, the council said there are two schools of thought. That wouldn't have been said a little while ago because there was only one. Only one could be sayable. Uh, the other one was an outrageous conspiracy theory. We're not hearing that anymore. That argument, that particular barrier to discussion has fallen. Yes, okay, thank you, David. Now we'll be talking a little bit more about the uh, Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrate shortly with uh, with Mark. But before we get to that, Mark, let's move on to the other uh, big uh, agenda item uh, globally at the moment, which of course is the Pandemic Treaty. Uh, so take us through this. Yes, as I've been reporting, the World Pandemic Treaty and the associated international health regulations <clears throat> are being worked on in parallel 
at the WHO in Geneva. Lots of deadlines coming up, lots of things for our viewers to take note of, lots of reasons to contact your members of parliament. And here is a very important one right, right down the bullseye here. We've talked about this before, that once local signatures in the UK cross the 100,000 threshold, the parliament, uh, by their own statements and own stated policy, is supposed to have debates. And this petition that achieved that many signatures, we're looking at 103,012 at the last reading. This petition says, hold a parliamentary vote on whether to reject the amendments to the International Health Regulations of 2005. Those regs were created in the late 1960s, and they've been uh, updating them as of late. And then moving on from there, um, this is just the nomenclature that's on that same website that's a parliament website. Parliament will consider this for a debate. Parliament considers all petitions that get more than 100,000 signatures for a debate, it says. But then it says the government responded as of the 4th of July, 2023, quote, we support targeted IHR amendments to ensure a suitable global framework to respond to international spread of disease. Parliament may scrutinize legislation relating to amendments accepted by the UK. So that's a bit non-committal and vague sounding, but that's basically how that's shaping up. Now here, uh, we have another important part, part to add. I recently got on the uh, WHO's um, uh, press uh, register for a UK column. <clears throat> so now I can attend their press conferences virtually. And I've been trying to do that. Some of the timings are a little strange because it's in Switzerland. But on this last part, it covers another important aspect. This is a press release since I got on their registry. During their last meetings, the emergency committees advising the who's uh, director general, that's Tedros, on the COVID-19 and MPOX, monkeypox situation, expressed the views that the uh, that Tedros should issue standing recommendations provided under the IHR to address the long-term management of COVID and monkeypox, COVID-19 and monkeypox. The director general decided that the issuance of standing recommendations for both diseases is warranted and to that effect, in accordance with IHR provisions, is convening review committees tasked to provide their views and technical advice with respect to these proposed standing recommendations. These standing recommendations will cover the same period as the WHO strategic plans, the COVID-19 Strategic Preparedness and Response Plan 2023 through 2025, and the Global Strategy for Elimination and Control of Monkeypox uh, 2023 through 27. And uh, this is important right here. Since entry into effect of the IHR in 2007, this is the first time that the Director General is issuing standing recommendations, the first time ever, which are intended to be implemented by state parties to the IHR. And I spoke to the LA-based sleuth on the WHO and all this stuff last night, James Rogowski, and he said the standing recommendations are a way for the WHO apparatus that's working on this to kind of nudge everything along and get the momentum going the way they want to get the nation states that are involved, the 194 member nation states of the WHO, to get them uh, kind of in a, in a mode or a, uh, a pattern of implementation uh, so as to create a fate accompli, a foregone conclusion that most of the nation states will, will agree to the treaty and the changes to the IHR. 
So James sees some manipulation here, guys. And so that's the latest. Uh, I'll be uh, going to more press conferences of the WHO virtually, and we'll see what else shapes up. But I, I would just add that uh, uh, viewers are going to want to call their members of parliament in the UK uh, big time if, they, uh, if they're concerned about this. Well, indeed. And we would encourage that. Absolutely. Um, okay, let's move on then. Um, if you like what the UK Column's doing, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. Um, your membership is absolutely welcome uh, and appreciated. Uh, or you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, which is shop.ukcolumn.org. But please do share anything you find on the various platforms, uh, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, and uh, David, uh, tomorrow uh, we have uh, an interview going out at 1 p.m., with Katie Hopkins. Yeah, not to be missed this one. It's um, it's it covers I, I think the full emotional range. I think you would you could safely say, uh, and it was uh, it was very entertaining, very interesting, and I do hope people will join us for that. Brilliant. And uh, then on Wednesday uh, during the news, uh, we're hoping to be joined by Professor Chris Flowers. I mean, we understand we will be joined by Professor Chris Flowers uh, for the news program. Uh, with Debbie and uh, uh, just a little bit of background on him. Uh, Dr. Chris Flowers is a retired associate professor of radiology at the University of South Florida. He's also uh, worked at other universities in radiology and biomedical imaging and so on. Uh, but he is has been overseeing and coordinating three and a half thousand volunteer researchers analyzing uh, the released Pfizer and Moderna documents. Uh, and uh, he is uh, apparently coming back to the UK, would uh, like to uh, run a similar type of operation over here as well. So uh, we'll hear from him on Wednesday, uh, we expect. Now, we want to issue uh, a quick correction, um, and that is that uh, on last Monday's programme, uh, Brian was covering the fact that the BBC had uh, run an attack on Gemma O'Doherty and the, the Irish Light newspaper, the headline there being woman abused by paper which falsely said vaccine killed her son. Uh, Gemma would just wants us to clarify that because we uh, said that, you know, we said it in those terms with the reading out what the BBC had said, but she wanted to make, make it absolutely clear uh, that the, the Irish light paper never said uh, that the boy had died as a result of the vaccination. The paper had said that the, the boy had died suddenly and it talked about other cases of sudden death, but hadn't attributed directly uh, the death of the boy to the vaccine. Is that is that a fair uh, assessment of what uh, she had, the points that she had made, David? Yes, I mean, it, the, the Irish Light newspaper was saying what we were saying, which was there's been a huge increase in sudden deaths. This is unexplained. Uh, according to the mainstream narrative, there, no one knows. And then there's all these very strange suggestions that it's to do with you know, climate change or what have you. There's all sorts of weird and wonderful suggestions as to why it's happening. Or, and and the one thing that's not looked at is the vaccination program. And the, as I understand it, the Irish Light, Light newspaper was making this point and pointing towards the the vaccination program as an area which which may explain uh, the increase in sudden deaths. Um, and it, it appeared that the BBC is painting this in in a false light. Um, and Gemma also gave us other information about some of the conduct in the BBC, and we'll, we we think that's very interesting. We'll be looking into it, and uh, we'd like we'll come back to our audience when we have more detail on that. But it seems the BBC are willing to take information from, shall we say, nefarious sources. 
Indeed. Okay, thank you for that. Now let's uh, move on then to online safety. And last, uh, the end of last week, uh, Michelle Donnellan, the Secretary of State for uh, Science, Innovation and Tech, was on BBC Radio 4 uh, talking about the uh, the current attack on end-to-end -end encryption in particular, and this has been the biggest argument over the as the online safety bill rolls through the House of Lords uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, I, like you, she said, want my privacy because I don't want people reading my private messages. Uh, they'd be very bored, uh, but I don't want them to do it. Uh, so that was her trying to establish uh, a starting point. Uh, but then she went on to say, however, we do now know that some of these platforms uh, they're hotbeds sometimes for child abuse and sexual exploitation. Uh, and she said, uh, and we have to be able to access that information should that problem occur. I'd like to know why she wants to access that information, but okay, she says she does. Um, well, uh, the issue here is, of course, that this is a front uh, and the UK government has done very little over the decades uh, to in any way uh, do anything to stop child sexual exploitation, child abuse, uh, the sharing of uh, imagery online and so on. Uh, what this is really about is making sure that uh, anybody that's uh, campaigning uh, or in any way uh, attempting to, to counter what government is doing, uh, that those uh, activities can be spied upon. Because it's not just, as we were saying just before I went on uh, my two-week break, in July, it's not just the online safety bill that is the issue here. It's all also the upgrade to the Investigative Powers Act. Uh, so let's just remind you what this is about. Uh, the tech companies will have to uh, clear new security features with the Home Office before they're implemented. So this is what the government is going to do through secondary legislation. This isn't something that's going to go through Parliament for approval. This is secondary legislation. It will be laid uh, in, in Parliament uh, and of course, if your MP is not actually there to uh, in any way um, vote against it, it'll just go through as a matter of course. Uh, and since these things are laid at uh, uh, periods of time where generally people aren't in the House of Commons, that's it's really just a, a formality in practice. So anyway, tech companies have to clear new security features with the Home Office before they're implemented. And that means that even non-UK companies will have to comply uh, with changes uh, and that including breaking end-to-end -end encryption. So it's not just the, on, the online safety bill that's uh, carrying out this attack here, it's also this. Uh, tech companies will have to respond immediately to notices rather than waiting for the result of any appeals. Uh, data retention notices require the retention of communications data by operators. Uh, and uh, technical capability notices are going to require operators to provide and maintain technical capabilities, enabling them to respond to relevant uh, authorizations through the Investigatory Powers Act. Uh, and this means much more snooping on uh, the general day-to-day -day activities of people, of individuals. Uh, and finally, national security notices would require the telecommunications operator to take such specified steps as the Secretary of State considers necessary in the interests of national security. So they can do anything to anyone at any time with respect to their online communications. Uh, and all they have to do is yell national security. Uh, Finally, the Investigatory Powers Act also specifies that those persons in receipt of a notice or any person employed or engaged for the purposes of that person's business must not disclose the existence or contents of the notice uh, to any other person without the permission of the Secretary of State. So this all happens in secret and you don't get to know about it. Now, we were pointing this out uh, before in July because there was a consultation going on that ended on the 31st of July. I hope everybody got there 
uh, information into that. Um, and uh, we will keep you posted on what the outcome of that consultation is. Um, and finally, on the issue of online safety, I just want to uh, make the point that Scott Ritter is the latest person uh, to have his YouTube channel or his YouTube uh, presence uh, taken down by YouTube permanently. Uh, this is a tweet that he sent out on the 11th of August saying, when it rains, it pours. The same day that YouTube deplatformed the Scott Ritter show, they deplatformed de Ask the Inspector. This is a targeted effort by YouTube to remove slash minimize my voice. And those are my guests and the people who took the time to ask probing questions about the pressing issues of the day. Those who are behind this should know you won't succeed. There's a vast social media world out there beyond YouTube. And for those voices who still use YouTube as, YouTube as the primary vector for your audience, consider this, conform or perish. If you're do, doing a geopolitical show uh, and you're still platformed by YouTube, ask yourself why uh, and be willing to live with the answer. More on this later. Uh, don't know what your thoughts are on that, David. Well, it's very, it's very right. Uh, th there's so many things are now prohibited by YouTube. Um, and basically, they, they silence the truth. And this is not what they were built to do. And this is not what their user base wants them to do. Ultimately, that will take them down. Indeed. Okay, thank you. Now, Mark, let's uh, come back to the doctrine on the lesser magistrate. Yeah, I was glad to cover in person this past Saturday, August 12th, Matt Trujella, who uh, heads up that doctrine in terms of promoting its importance and its relevance. He's a pastor from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I've talked about him before on this show. But going to this particular Lake James Christian Camp and Retreat Center in Angola was a very enjoyable experience. And there I am in that slide uh, meeting Matt after his two speeches that day. Uh, one was entitled basically, Where Have the Men Gone? And the second uh, address was about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates itself. And so we can move on from there. Uh, that shows uh, Matt speaking. These are pictures I took uh, to the left. And there's a host pastor, Bud Owen, from a nearby church. He introduced Matt. He's shown to the right there. Uh, very nice. Uh, UK column was very warmly welcomed there. And Mr. Owen, notably, is going to be sending a link to today's show to dozens, if not hundreds, of other members of area churches. But anyway, we do have some of Matt's uh, speech here. I took some videos as well, and we got a couple of clips, and I can comment uh, after each clip. James Madison said on the subject of an arbiter or umpire, there can be none external to the U.S. federal government more than the individual state. Our founders expected the states to interpose when evil was done by the federal beast. This has all been turned on its head now. Most of the states now function as what? Mere provinces of the federal beast. Mere implementation centers of unjust and immoral federal law, policy, and court opinion. Yeah, there he's talking about a very important aspect. Uh, and I, this hasn't been covered before specifically, but that suggests that the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which says that when uh, higher magistrates fail to do their duty or commit evil, it's up to the lesser or lower magistrates to interpose and stop the evil, correct the problem. And this is a, a, a worldview and a, a system that works very well at mitigating against tyranny. And that quote there about James Madison suggests that Madison saw the states as a primary way 
or the primary means, the primary actors to interpose when the federal government, which was just newly minted in those days, when that federal government would uh, sooner or later abuse its powers. So it seems, again, and this is somewhat my interpretation of it, but it's pretty clear that the founding of America did include kind of an element of the lesser of the magistrates, lesser uh, doctrine of the lesser magistrates, rather. And the Tenth Amendment kind of speaks to that, too, where any powers not delegated to the federal government by the Constitution are reserved to the states and the people. So the Tenth Amendment, the uh, last last amendment in the Bill of Rights kind of helps buttress uh, this doctrine. But we have another video clip that gets into another aspect, and this one is about pastors that are too uh, supine and uh, obedient to the almighty state. Constitution, they're to be opposed and resisted. And when they exceed the limits of the authority they possess, either by what is shown in the word of God or by either of the constitutions, they are to be resisted. Understand, there was a churchman who said, if the governor tells me to put pinwheels on my head, to go into the grocery store, I put pinwheels on my head. No, you don't. He's exceeded the limits of his authority. Men fought, bled, and died for the freedom we have. And who are we to so glibly walk in and throw it on the ground, yes. spitting on the blood that they shed for our freedom? Extremely important to understand these things. And it's extremely important that we understand them with Christian thought. And that's what the doctrine of the lesser magistrate is. And, and there he was talking about something that he criticized quite a bit, and that's the church in general. Um, it's important to note that uh, an, uh, an important aspect of doctrine of the lesser magistrates is to look at government, not as just civil government with legislative, judicial, judicial and executive, but to look at civil government alongside self-government, church government and family government. And this is a way of thinking that's almost been lost in our world society that government isn't just civil authorities who collect taxes and have the badges and the guns. It's our families, it's ourselves in the way we conduct ourselves and through our church and through spiritual matters, not purely material matters. This is what adds harmony and balance to society, Matt contends. And it's a pretty strong message that's resonating with more and more and more people. So Matt had a lot to say about pastors that were, um, you might say goose-stepping to the COVID tune during the COVIDocracy, during the clampdown, and how the church is really, really abdicating uh, its role to call out the abuses by civil government, et cetera, et cetera, um, including mitigating against the abortion industry, uh, where that was handed back to the states when Roe Ro v. Wade was overturned. And yet many of the states are still allowing what Matt termed a widespread slaughter that's still happening. And he lamented that, as did the 100-plus um, attendees at the uh, retreat that I covered. And uh, one other item on this, maybe there's two here, but one other one is that the states that are really implementing the doctrine of the lesser magistrates include Michigan, Illinois, Ohio, and now Massachusetts. And this item here, uh, I'll just kind of cherry pick it, like Illinois, Michigan, and Oregon, that's another one. The state legislature and the governor of Massachusetts has introduced a bill which tramples upon the Second Amendment of the right to keep and bear arms. The bill HD 4420 is a tyrant's paradise. This is according to uh, Matt's website, 
DefyTyrants.com. The bill is designed to turn law-abiding citizens into criminals, but the WARE, W-A-R-E, Massachusetts Police Department is interposing. They are fighting. They are doing the duty of the lesser magistrates. When the bill was introduced, they were the first to issue a statement calling on the citizens to take action against this lawless attack upon their God-given rights. And here's the key, and this happens a lot, and now other police departments are following suit and issuing similar declarations and statements. The Ware Department statement declares, in part, we recognize that the right to bear arms is a fundamental aspect of our nation's history, an essential component of personal and collective security, important words. As members of the police force, we are committed to upholding the law and defending the rights of our community members. A plethora of unconstitutional proposals litter, litter that is, this travesty of a bill. And so you see this kind of wildfire viral effect that the lesser magistrates doctrine has had in several states. We've talked about Lapeer County, Michigan, Ottawa County, Michigan, where people that practice this doctrine are now uh, elected to the county boards in those areas, and it's having an amazing effect, as I've mentioned. And uh, that's essentially it. Um, it was a very, very well-received uh, uh, pair of speeches by Mr. Truella, and uh, people, they, they, come across, they came across as very committed to learning more and implementing what Matt spoke about. So this, this is a movement that bears a lot of watching, and I think amazing things are going to happen from this, from what I've seen so far. Okay, thanks, Mark. And I'll just uh, mention that on Wednesday, I think we'll probably be mentioned, we're covering the fact that uh, the uh, local authorities on the UK are going to be given more opportunity to raise money for themselves, not just through to council tax. Uh, and uh, so that uh, just makes that the, the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, David, even more important. Uh, but let's uh, move on to, uh, well, rich men, rich men north of Richmond. Yeah, so people say we don't we don't have good news on on UK Com. Well, today we do lots of it. We've got uh, Dr. John Clauser, uh calling out pseudoscience on climate change. We've got uh, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates being proclaimed on both sides of the Atlantic, and we have this. This is a viral hit um, from a man called uh, Oliver Anthony, and uh, basically he posted a YouTube video on August the seventh, uh, a performance of his uh, song "Rich Men North of Richmond." the first song he'd ever recorded on a real microphone and a real camera, not just on his cell phone. It's gone viral and it's been a massive, massive hit. Um, we have here uh, Fox News describes it as a blue-collar political anthem. Uh, the, the left, obviously, don't like the blue-collar workers at all anymore, so Rolling Stone calls it uh, right-wing influencers just found their favourite country song uh, and uh, comments that... Uh, he blasts high taxes and obese people on welfare. Well, he does a lot more besides that. And they say he even appears to allude to Jeffrey Epstein. No, he doesn't appear to do anything. He absolutely skewers that one. And we have a short clip and we'll play the full song in extra. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to For people like me, people like you Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is Think, wanna know what you do, and they don't think you know. 
Look out for miners, and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got folks in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the whole beast milking welfare. And it's a wonderful song. We'll talk about it extensively in Extra. Uh, it covers so many important issues. Uh, and uh, I, hope, uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. Okay, thanks, David. Now, uh, let's uh, move on just quickly to Ukraine and more about this sort of media coverage because obviously the uh, counteroffensive isn't going so well. Uh, but let's uh, bring the Messenger News up, first of all, uh, and look at how they're describing things, things. So this is from the United States, and they're saying Ukraine is losing U.S. weapons uh, on the battlefield. Uh, heavy equipment losses are forcing a change in tactics and raising tough questions about the future of the war. And the question is, what is the future of the war? And so what they say here is, according to the widely cited open source blog, Oryx, which documents only equipment losses that can be verified by photo photographic evidence. At least 23 of Ukra Ukraine's Bradleys have already been destroyed. Another 21 have been damaged, and five of those have been abandoned. More than 60 M113 armored vehicle, uh, armored fighting vehicles, 57 Max Pro mine-resistant vehicles, and more, 100, more than 100 Humvees have also been destroyed, damaged, or lost. The value of all this destroyed equipment likely runs into the hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, they say the high rate of destruction has come as a result of heavily fortified Russian defensive positions, including vast fields of mines. And in contrast, in the early days to the early days of the war, Russia's tactics have also become more innovative and effective. The Russians have been making particularly effective use of Ka-52 alligator attack helicopters to strike Ukraine, Ukraine's vehicles and tanks. So that's uh, the view from the messenger on the uh, western side of the Atlantic. Uh, here is the Times, however, uh, and their headline is Ukraine is winning the war with Russia, but it won't be over by Christmas. Um, so Western weapons mean the Russians are outgunned and Putin is dithering, but Zelensky's counteroffensive remains grindingly slow. Uh, so what are they saying? They're saying the Ukrainians acknowledge that the counteroffensive has not gone to plan uh, and they've not made the progress they hoped for or expected. Uh, it does not mean the counteroffensive has failed as territory has been liberated and Russian forces seriously degraded. A month or two remains in which Ukraine could yet achieve a breakthrough. Brackets November is when the winter rains in the southern Zaporozhye region uh, really start to make conditions difficult. Uh, and it goes on to say, that said, uh, the Ukrainians still hold the initiative. They are, by any meaningful measure, winning, according to the Times. Uh, they have, for example, kept the Russians spread across a wide front and used their new long-range firepower and their capability to move more quickly from finding to hitting targets to degrade their enemies' all-important supply dumps and artillery. According to their own figures, in the last couple of months, they've been destroying perhaps 25 Russian artillery pieces a day. Uh, they've also repeatedly struck at crucial Russian supply lines, uh, especially the Chonar Bridge connecting mainland Ukraine to uh, Crimea. Uh, and then it goes on to say uh, there's a growing awareness in Kiev and the West that they need to start working on a new, longer time frame. So I don't even know where to start with that because uh, the Times article is so disgraceful. But anyway, uh, it's just as well that they're now working on a longer time frame uh, because, of course, the mainstream media has now decided uh, to acknowledge something that alternative media, including ourselves, have been saying from the very beginning, uh, and that is that there's no prospect of F-16s uh, of Ukrainian pilots flying F-16s in the near future uh, on the battlefield. Uh, so this is a Washington Post from a few days ago. 
saying F-16 training for Ukrainian pilots faces delays and uncertainty. Uh, and uh, Kiev wants U.S. made fighter jets as fast as possible. Uh, but the first pilots to undergo training probably won't be ready to fly them until next summer. Uh, so, David, uh, mainstream media is struggling with the current situation because uh, the, clearly the picture is pretty bleak. Uh, but the Times demonstrates that no matter how bleak it gets, uh, they can find the words to make it seem like Ukraine's still winning. Uh, but at least they're acknowledging, I suppose, uh, that uh, this is not going to end anytime soon. Yeah, it's going to be a long war. Started in 2014. It's a very long war. And uh, the, the, we're looking at something that's going to be similar in length to the Second World War, are we? Is that, is that really the plan? Is that really in the best interest of the Ukrainian people, the Russian people, or anybody? Uh, apart from the military-industrial complex? I, I think not. Um, this, again, shows the empty heart at the, uh, in, in the political sphere in the Ukraine and in the West in that there is still not a word calling for peace. Uh, indeed. Okay, uh, Mark, uh, let's uh, move on then to education. into Matt Truella's um, presentation on the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates in a sort of uh, um, um, tangential way. Uh, this headline from Fortune, it's not just the office people uh, don't want to go to, kind of an odd headline, it's not just the office people don't want to go to. COVID looks to have permanently severed something as school attendance plummets and keeps dropping. And uh, many people highly critical of the U.S. public school system are basically saying amen to this uh, because that school system, like the legacy media here, and of course much of this is around the world, has been a major instigator um, in turning education into indoctrination. And that became much more amplified during COVID. Here's a little bit of data that will round out today's report. Across the country, students have been absent at record rates since the schools reopened during the pandemic. More than a quarter of students missed at least 10% of the 2021-2022 school year, making them chronically absent. According to the most recent data available, before the pandemic, only 15% of students missed that much school. All told, an estimated 6.5 million Additional students became chronically absent, according to the data, which was compiled by Stanford University education professor Tom D. in partnership with the Associated Press. Uh, of course, there's the AP Wire Service showing its involvement in things that maybe it shouldn't be involved in necessarily. Taken together, the data from 40 states and Washington, D.C., provide the most comprehensive accounting of absenteeism nationwide. Absences were more prevalent, they claim, among Latino, Black, and low-income students, according to Dee's analysis. The absences come on top of the time students miss during school closures and pandemic disruptions. They cost crucial classroom time as schools work to recover from massive learning setbacks. Well, I've covered a little bit about how they try to teach reading, the, the uh, very wrongful and questionable ways they try to teach reading, what they call the new math, so massive learning setbacks are hardly the fault of COVID and school closures. They're large, largely the fault of uh, school policies that have been using wrongheaded ways to teach fundamentals for a long time. And all the closures did was exacerbate that. 
And now, as we've read elsewhere, and as I've reported on UK Column before, when the pandemic happened, a lot of parents, sometimes for the first time, saw the actual curriculum their students were using from the schools, and they were shocked. Not only was it unworkable, but it it often had to do with diversity, um, exclusion, equity, things like that, the whole woke agenda, uh, the LGBTQ indoctrination, et cetera, et cetera. So what we're really seeing is is the public school system, at least in the states, uh, coming apart. And COVID did us an ironic favor in uh, taking the mask off that system. And now maybe you might say the market will correct itself as more and more people who never before considered homeschooling might now consider it. And that will actually um, accent, you might say, the freedom movement in the United States that the doctrine of the lesser magistrates is kind of taking the lead on. So all told, this is good news, even though it's a bumpy road along the way. Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, And David, uh, let's uh, move on to what's going on in the movies. Well, more good news. So we have here the release date uh, for uh, Sound of Freedom, which is a film um, directed by uh, Mel Gibson. Um, and it's uh, about the fight against child sex trafficking. And this takes us into areas that uh, the uh, powers that shouldn't be may not wish us to go. Uh, This has been released and has been a huge success in the States, and it's released in the UK and Ireland on the 1st of September. Um, And we've also got another upcoming film I want to talk about. This is The Jones Plantation. Uh, the, the, the description for this says you can control a man with brute violence, but you can never truly own a man until he's convinced that your word is law and obedience is a virtue. Uh, this is a film destined to be a cult, craft, uh, a cult classic uh, and at the forefront of American dissident cinema. Now, I know what you're thinking. I didn't think there was any American dissident cinema. Well, there is now, and we have a trailer. You can control a man for a period, with brute violence. But you cannot truly own a man unless he thinks your word is law and that he must obey and is virtuous for doing so. We are losing money. A little more every month that goes by with with no end in sight. They can sense weakness and they are gonna smell blood like a gator to chum. They're gonna kill us both. Mr. Scott said this man is a miracle worker. I think he can help us. You're a Nick. Good people, good people. My name is Mr. Smith. As of this very moment, you are now all free. Free at last. From now on, we are all in this together. This plantation will run on equality. (laughs) I have created something called Jones Plantation Credits. We're going to keep them up to their ears in debt. Jimmy Jack will now be in charge of our new security team to protect this plantation and to serve all of you. You two are going to have a little contest to see who can win the hearts and minds of the human livestock out there. Bo Jones! Most people are weak-minded to wield real power. You must be willing to do what most consider unthinkable. What most people consider to be unthinkable is that men like you even exist. That's our greatest advantage. As free people, 
We work together for mutual benefits. Blessing our love and loyalty to the organization. We are not free. I ain't no slave. Ah, they have tricked you into thinking that choosing your own master is the same as being free. You offer them a truth that they don't want. They want to feel safe. There's a dark thing going on this plantation. Every man deserves freedom, but freedom isn't free. I'm Nathaniel Jones, and I approve this message. God bless you, and God bless this glorious... Toodaloo! <laughs> <laughs>so i don't have a release date for that yet but uh, that looks excellent and it looks to ask all the questions we should be asking yes i think we probably uh, should talk about a little bit more about that during extra david uh so cool uh let's uh, move on i just wanted to get your thoughts very briefly on this uh now last year uh, the european union external action service which is their embryonic foreign office if you want to call, think of it in that way uh, the diplomatic service of the European Union is how they describe it. Uh, they started a summer course uh, called Quo Vadis Europa. Uh, and last year they talked about it being the birth of geopolitical Europe. Um, so I just thought we would run through the uh, topics for uh, this year's Quo Vadis Europa, uh, which is taking place in Santander uh, between the 21st and 25th of August. Uh, it's a summer course. So let's have a look at the uh, the topics that they're uh, teaching people about. First of all, uh, the European Union and the face of war and peace in Ukraine. Well, of course, uh, they'll be talking about that. Uh, not too much about the peace but, bit, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, let's move on. The next thing is all about uh, EU support for Ukraine. So, so far, so good. You, these are pretty much what you would expect. Uh, but then we get into stuff that we've been talking about for quite some time. But enlargement and neighbourhood, David, the eastern neighbourhood in particular. So the western Balkans becoming or getting on their way towards the European Union because uh, European Union is expansionist and it's heading eastwards. And of course, Ukraine is absolutely on its uh, target list of countries. Uh, another one uh, looking east, uh, this time, of course, we've got to make sure we've got an enemy. So uh, uh, the EU vis-a-vis -vis Russia and its alliance with China. Uh, stick with China here because uh, the EU is concerned about uh, being in the face of China's emergency. Uh, and so on. Uh, Europe as a geopolitical actor in security and defense. And of course, this is about defense union, uh, but also Africa, uh, also about defense union, because David, if you remember a couple of years ago, Ursula von der Leyen saying that, you know, Africa is not the place for NATO. Really, that's where European defense union is a key part of, uh, of global infrastructure. Uh, and then we've got uh, the construction of a political Europe in the face of the fragmentation of the global system. And I thought this was an interesting one because they're certainly recognizing that the global system is fragmenting. Uh, I think there's a lot of pressure on the European Union itself and uh, quite a bit of danger that it might fragment. Uh, and they're clearly wanting to address that. But I just wanted to get briefly your thoughts on bearing in mind I'm hijacking you with because you haven't seen that before uh, on, on the choice of topics for uh, the future direction of Europe. Well, if anyone's been watching the UK column for the last few years, that's exactly what we would have predicted. Um, the first time we ever had music uh, closing the UK column news, 
it was Lily Marlene. It was uh, we were talking about the um, the southern the European southern neighbourhood and the military uh, moves would be made by Mondelaine and uh, a certain Mr Tony Blair uh, to um, protect Europe uh, from Africans by essentially deploying uh, military forces into North Africa. And we were talking about the Deutsche Afrika Corps 2.0. And we finished with Lily Marlene. That was be about four or five years ago. And uh, here we are. It's now, it, yes, it's now being discussed at the highest levels. How interesting. Yes, indeed. Okay. Well, look, that's about it for today. But uh, we do have some uh, final slides, David. Uh, let's start off with this one. Yes, first, uh, over to Canada, we've got a, a pic of uh, Trudeau talking to a little girl, and he's saying, you're sad because the carbon tax is starving your family? Would you like medical assistance in dying? Um, this is uh, unfortunately a, a grimly funny because it's true. But more good news, uh, the Guardian here reports that Nicola Sturgeon's writing a book. It's going to be deeply personal and revealing, even though she can't remember anything when asked. And it's to be published in 2025. There was a, a, a there was nine bids and Macmillan won it. Um, and Sturgeon told BBC Radio 4 she would almost certainly write an autobiography, even if it was just for therapy, just for myself. Uh, well, that's unusual. Now, um, it's not got a title yet. No title's been published. However, Scottish political Twitter has come to the rescue and they have got a title for Nicola. So uh, the suggestion is the uh, autobiography is going to be called Mein Kampfervan by Nicola Sturgeon. Yes, brilliant. Well, I mean, what can we say to that? <laughs> Thank you very much, David. Right, that is all we have time for today. Uh, we will be back in 10 minutes or so uh, for some extra if you're a UK column member. I want to say thank you once again to everybody that has been supporting us over the days, weeks, and months. Uh, and uh, we'll see you in a few minutes for extra. Otherwise, we'll see you on Wednesday. Don't forget the Katie Hopkins interview at 1 p.m. in the usual places, uh, ukcolumn.org slash live and community.ukcolumn.org slash live tomorrow. Uh, and uh, uh, otherwise, we'll see you at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. See you then. Bye-bye.